I said last week, this portion of the sermon contains some of the most well-known verses, perhaps in all of Matthew's gospel, maybe even on occasion in all of the New Testament. We're entering into a section in the sermon that is very well known, at least in part, the odd verse is very well known. And verses 7 through 11 would be no exception. These are familiar verses, I'm sure, to many of you. In and of themselves, taken in isolation, these verses are a great encouragement. An encouragement to know that our Heavenly Father hears us when we pray and that He is ready to answer. But beyond the significance of the text taken in and of its own right, in isolation, this few verses in the sermon form a pivotal point within these chapters because these verses close out a series of concentric units. So whenever you study the Bible, it's important to ask questions of how the argument is developing within the text. It's especially important to ask that of the sermon, Jesus didn't give just isolated or arbitrary thoughts that were disconnected from one another. There's a, there's a logic underpinning what he preaches from the mountain. And this unit here closes out many previous sections of the sermon. So, for example, it forms the complement to verses 1 through 6 of this chapter. That's one mini-unit within the sermon. Ask and it will be given forms the complement to judging rightly. Thus, it closes out that small section. Additionally, these verses close out the larger section that began in 619. You remember after Jesus gave the warnings to not be like the hypocrites three times over with different examples and his teaching on the Lord's Prayer, we then enter into a new unit that begins, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth. That larger unit ends with his teaching, ask, and it will be given. Additionally, these verses close out the much bigger unit that began all the way back in 517. You'll remember after Jesus issued the Beatitudes and taught his disciples about being salt and light, he then began to teach the Christian ethic. I've come to fulfill the law, to bring it to fruition. And here's how my disciples are to behave. That much larger unit finds its conclusion in our text this morning. So you see verses 7 through 11 of chapter 7 form a pivotal role in the sermon. The meaning of the text is rich and composite because of its function within the broader sermon. My summary of the point of the text, ask 
and you will flourish. All the way through the sermon, Jesus has been teaching his disciples how to flourish. That's what he's concerned with. He's not against you. He is for you. He wants for you to live a life joyfully under the reign of a sovereign, holy God. And that means to pick up Jesus' commands and to run with them and to know that they are not burdensome, but they are given for your flourishing. Here, he teaches a second time on prayer after previously having taught how we should pray. He now gives us the assurance that if we ask, we will flourish. And our flourishing is found in a fourfold manner. Our flourishing is found in so much as we see here the effectiveness of prayer, the nature of our Father who is in heaven. In so much as we learn through this text how it is that we can let go of earthly treasures. And finally, how when we ask, we can live out the greater righteousness to which he commands. So there's our four points this morning. We'll work through this text, as it were, from four different angles, seeing the concentric circles and how it closes out each successive unit and how that instructs us as to how to live and how to pray. Beginning then, just taking the text in isolation in its own right, verses 7 through 11, and seeing how Jesus here teaches his disciples about the effectiveness of prayer. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who receives, who asks, receives, everyone who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Jesus here is being very emphatic. He's being intentionally repetitive. He's giving one single principle three times over. You see, it's a mistake to probe the imperatives too much to try and discern a difference between each one, far better to understand them broadly as synonyms. Ask, seek, knock. He's issuing the same teaching three times over. And then he says it a second time. He's being very emphatic in order to impress upon his disciples the very simple truth that prayer works. Prayer is effective. As we read in James 1 this morning, we are not to doubt when we pray because prayer is effective. Now, it is not effective because of the disciples' skill in asking. That is not where the efficacy of prayer comes from. It is not even effective based on the persistence of the prayer. I want to be careful here. Elsewhere in the Bible, we are taught about the value of persistence in prayer. In fact, in Luke's gospel, he records this teaching from Jesus and just prior, we get the lesson 
about the neighbor that goes and knocks and doesn't give up knocking. And because of his persistence, he receives. So there are other texts that esteem the value of going to the Lord over and over again. And certainly, if when you pray, you don't see an answer immediately, ask again. But here in Matthew, that's not his point. The subsequent illustration about the snake and the fish and the bread and the rock shows us that persistence is not the reason, as given here by Jesus, for the efficacy of prayer. The reason why prayer works is because you are praying to a loving Heavenly Father. The effectiveness of prayer is anchored in the immensity of God's love. That's why prayers are answered. It is the same love that before the foundation of the world set itself upon you so as to be predestined unto salvation. It is the same love that decreed that the Son would go into a sinful humanity and live there, not sinning once and then die a criminal's death on the cross. It is the same love that raised Jesus three days later from the tomb, and it is that love that gave you eyes to see and gave you life to be with Christ. That love has enveloped your life as a Christian. All that you do comes under the sovereign love of your heavenly Father. And so when you pray to Him, you can anticipate that He hears you and is ready to answer. Some years ago, I was preaching to a very different crowd then would come here on a Sunday morning, and I said in passing, God's ears are shut to the unbeliever. And I got in a lot of trouble for that comment. There was lots and lots and lots of questions that followed. But I stood by it. I said, it's the gospel. If you're a sinner who has not repented and put your faith in Christ, your sin separates you from God. He doesn't hear your prayers because you are not reconciled with Him. The prayer that He does hear is the prayer that cries out for salvation. But don't go asking from Him as one who has not repented of their sin and put their faith in Christ for manifold blessings, expecting that He has open ears and open arms ready to bless. By contrast, if you are here this morning as a child of God, know that He hears your every prayer and is delighted to answer you. Because the blood of Christ covers you. His love has enveloped your life and your prayers go up to Him as one who has been reconciled to Him. Thus, Jesus can be emphatic and say, ask, seek, knock, and it will be given to you. God is in heaven delighting in his children when they pray to him. Or to put it another way, when you pray, things happen. Taken in isolation, this is one of the most encouraging texts in the sermon, perhaps in the 
entirety of Matthew's gospel, maybe even the whole New Testament. Meditate upon just these first two verses and know that your Father hears your prayers and is ready to answer them. And as I say that, I understand that there are objections. In your heart, you're thinking quite possibly, but I have prayed and have not been answered. I've prayed and I haven't seen the response that Jesus seemingly here guarantees. We have to understand this is not a carte blanche to have any request given. It's not what Jesus is saying And there is no other text in the Bible that would support that understanding of prayer. We can't scripturally defend the suggestion that anything we request will be granted to us. More to the point, if that's how you think about prayer, it actually starts to warp the way in which you think about God. If you think about prayer as some kind of transaction, I just need to ask anything, and it's given to me. If that's how you think about prayer, God is shrunk down to become a genie in a lamp. You rub the lamp and you get the thing that you want. Or maybe a magician, he just pulls the the thing out of the hat that you asked for, a, a vending machine. I go, and all that's required is that I ask, and I get exactly what I want. It shapes your view of God in a way that is not biblical and does not honor Him. As ever, you have to remember there is a larger context to what Jesus is saying here. Yes, He's being emphatic. Ask, seek, knock. Ask, seek, knock. But He's doing so within the context of the sermon, not least what He has previously taught on prayer. I used to say one of the most discouraging things about preaching is that everyone's forgotten what you say by Monday morning. Some Sundays I say, though, that's one of the most encouraging things about preaching. (laughs) Jesus assumes that as you read these verses, you remember what he has previously said about prayer. Back in chapter 6, He said, your priority in praying is to seek that your life would hallow, honor, revere your Father. Number one priority in your prayer life, indeed beyond simply your prayer life, in your life, for whatever time the Lord has given you on earth, number one priority, Father, may my life honor you. That's how we began the Lord's prayer, and the order of the request that he gives us is significant. The first thing that comes out of your mouth, may it be the desire that is foremost in your heart, is to honor the Lord with your life. If that is genuinely your desire, it begins to then order that which you come and ask for. Father, number one priority, I want to honor you with all my life. That alone is going to stop you from asking for other things, from certain requests that you would otherwise ask. You pray in the flesh, you can pray all kinds of things to God the Father. You pray in the Spirit and you allow this teaching to guide and direct your prayers. It will hold you back from asking certain things and it will prompt you to pray for other things. 
You see, you bring together Jesus' two teachings on prayer within this one sermon and allow one to inform the other. Or, to put it another way, in the words of the psalmist, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Think about that. That is a verse to hold on to. When you delight yourself in the Lord, then he will give you, grant you the desires of your heart. This is the priority as we go to the Lord in prayer. Now, two weeks ago, as we began this new calendar year, I charged you to abound in the love of God. How do we begin this year? What might our goals be for the calendar year and beyond? And you remember we were in Jude, and Jude says, keep yourself in the love of God. How do we keep ourselves in the love of God? He gives us the means right there in that text, one of which was pray in the Holy Spirit. Plan to pray, pray scripture, pray until you pray, pray in the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you were a doer of the Word that Sunday. I don't know if you've been a doer of the Word since then, if maybe you were a hearer only of the Word that Sunday, if your prayer life has changed in light of the Word of God, whether it has or has not. I want to encourage you again to pray in the Holy Spirit. As a means of abounding in the love of God, pray in the Holy Spirit. And with this text in view, Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, how much more? If you were not encouraged to pray in the Holy Spirit then, how much more now seeing the truth that your loving Heavenly Father is listening, is waiting for you to pray, and delights to hear your requests? is ready to open up the storehouses of heaven and bless you more abundantly than you can possibly grasp when you would but pray to Him. Pray in the Holy Spirit and know that if you ask and if you knock and if you seek, it will be granted to you. This text, taken in isolation, before we even start to consider the surrounding context should be a great encouragement to you concerning the effectiveness of your prayers. Now, as we step back and zoom out, we can see that Jesus' teaching here also instructs us in our thinking about God. As I said earlier, it ends the immediate unit that began in verse 1 of this chapter. So the structure of the sermon has many units and subunits, and one of those miniature units is chapter 7, verses 1 through 11. Jesus' teaching on prayer, ask, seek, knock, forms a complement to verses 1 through 6. 
Last week, we considered that Jesus teaches us not to judge harshly. He's not saying don't judge. He's not saying don't evaluate, don't perceive and reason and even speak when it's appropriate. He's not prohibiting that. As I mentioned, the church depends upon our right evaluations of each other. In part, one of the ways in which God grows His church is through us speaking the truth in love to one another. It depends upon right judgments. Jesus is saying, don't judge harshly. Don't judge in a matter, in a manner that is void of all patience and grace and mercy and love. Be kind to one another. Be forgiving. Evaluate yourself before you speak. That's Jesus' point. Let it be known by the way in which you judge that you're a Christian. I thought just this week about a man that I interacted with many years ago on a daily basis before I was a Christian. I was a student at university. He had the job of what we called a a porter. He used to lock up the college at night with a team of other men, and they would oversee many of the logistics of running the school. He was an elderly man, retired from his primary career, and every morning as I walked to lectures, I would interact with him, have a brief chat, say good morning. And so I got to know him somewhat over the course of a few years, and I would observe how he interacted with me and with others. I observed how he made decisions, how he responded to complaints, how he dealt with all kinds of requests. And before I was a Christian, I remember looking at this man thinking, I'm sure he is a disciple of Christ because of the way in which he judged, the way in which he evaluated and interacted with people. And Jesus' point is you judge in such a way that people would not be surprised to hear that you're a Christian. Now, last week I spoke about how we all have within us this, this reflex whereby we imitate one another. We do it without even realizing it. We start to imitate those around us, those that we spend time with. We pick up the way that they say things. We imitate them in the way that they judge. And that's why Jesus says, if you judge harshly, don't be surprised when it comes back to you. That principle of imitating extends beyond simply those who are around us And also holds true with respect to how we think of God. The way in which you think of God affects the way in which you behave. This is why some of the most grace-less Christians, those who lack patience, lack mercy, lack love, are those who know the least about the God whom they say they worship. Christians who behave in a manner that lacks grace, lacks patience, lacks love, are generally those that do not know their God. 
They have not opened this book, anchored themselves to the theology it gives you, and learned of his character. And so they think of him as a hard-hearted, distant God who is begrudging of us, reluctant to bless us, and then behave in a like manner. You have to know God if you are to judge rightly. And so now you can see the logic of the text, how it forms a complement to Jesus' teaching that we should be those who evaluate in a way that is saturated with grace. He gives that command and then says, as it were, look at your heavenly Father. Look how rich He is towards you. He is not evil. He is not wicked. He loves you and He's ready to bless you out of the abundance of His grace. That thought should inform our understanding of Him and then teach us how to interact with others. Jesus gives an example to that very end. He says, which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Now, I want to just highlight how malicious is the hypothetical individual that Jesus speaks of here. He looks to the crowd around him. He knows what's in their hearts. And he says, imagine a father whose son comes to him hungry, asking for bread. And he gives him a stone. There's a connection there. Don't think of a loaf of bread as we buy one in the store today, packaged and sliced. It's just a a small piece of bread that presumably looks, could be mistaken for a stone or vice versa. In fact, in chapter 4 of Matthew's gospel, Satan says, for good reason, turn these stones into bread. There's a, a connection in how they appear. And so, as the son comes and asks for bread, the father tricks him. It's not simply that the father is saying, I'm not going to give you the thing you asked for. I'll give you a rock instead. He actually, it would seem, tricks him, gives him something that looks similar. And then the poor innocent child would bite on the stone and break his teeth. That's wickedness. Or in the second example, he asks for a fish. Again, he's hungry, his deepest physical need. He's hungry. And many suggest that the fish that the men would be catching from the Lake of Galilee in Jesus' day were eel-like, and so could, again, be mistaken for a snake. These long, thin fish, and the father deliberately does not give him that which he can eat. And whether the point is that the snake is alive and bites him or is dead if he eats it, he'll now be unclean according to the law. Again, we see the wickedness of this hypothetical father figure. And I think as Jesus gave this illustration, those around him would have scoffed. They would have understood the connections and laughed. Who would ever, ever do that to his own son, they say. This coming from a crowd that is made up of, yes, disciples whose hearts have been reborn, but also many that have just gathered in that do not yet know the transforming power of the gospel, and they also would say, we would never do that. 
And Jesus says, absolutely. And yet you are sinful. You would never do that. And yet you're sinful. You're evil. He's testifying to their inherent sinful nature. If you know better to not do that, how much more does God give good gifts to his children? Again, you see here the lesser to the greater logic that permeates all the way through the sermon, consider this example and then rest in the fact that your heavenly Father is nothing like this. He is a good heavenly Father and He gives good gifts. Now there are times when you pray and God says, yes. There are times when you pray and God says, Yes, this is why I think it's a good idea to keep a prayer journal. Write down what you've prayed for. Because we're so quick to overlook when we have an answered prayer. We forget to give thanks to our Father in heaven often. As we pray, He responds and says, Yes, there are other times when we pray And God says, I will answer that prayer, but I will answer it differently to the way in which you've asked for it. We don't have the wisdom that God has. We don't see the bigger picture in the way that God does. His will works itself out sometimes by answering our prayers in a manner that's different to the way in which we've asked. And then there are times when we ask and God says, no, I'm not going to answer that prayer. You won't see an answer from me. The point to recognize is that whether God answers the prayer exactly how you asked it or changes his response in accordance with your request or says not this time, every single response from God issues forth from an ocean of love. This needs to inform our understanding of our God. Jesus wants us to behold our loving Heavenly Father and for it to instruct us not only in our prayer life, but also as we interact with others. It's the mirror image to verses 1 through 6. Don't judge harshly how Consider your loving heavenly Father. See how He does not judge harshly. He doesn't interact with you in a way that lacks all patience. God is so patient with you. Look at your loving heavenly Father and see the oceans of love from which He responds to your prayers. Look at His goodness towards you. And allow that to instruct the way that you then interact with others. You make your assessments. You speak into people's lives. I received an email this week from an old friend. Old in the sense that I've known him very many years. And old in the sense that he just turned 90. We met him when we were first married, we were church shopping. I hate that term. (laughs) 
We had just moved to an area. We were trying to find a church to worship at. So we went to the nearest church to our house, and it was a very good church. The first Sunday we walked in, this elderly couple ran up to us, and they welcomed us. And we worshipped there, and as we were leaving that Sunday, they ran up to us before we could get out of the building. Same couple, and they said, would you come for lunch? I was still a fairly new Christian, and I wasn't used to this kind of hospitality. I thought, you don't know me. But we went for lunch, and over the years, they became some of our dearest friends in that season of life. We soon learned that this couple had spent their working careers on the mission field in Brazil. And there was one conversation that I had with the husband where he was telling me when they were first sent how judgmental he was. He said, I look back and I was so hard-hearted. I lacked so much patience and grace, which was a shock to me because I had only ever known him as one who was full of love for everyone. And so I considered how it was that he had changed so much in such a short space of time. And the answer, of course, is that he had spent his whole life telling people about the love of God. He'd spent his whole life thinking about his loving Heavenly Father. As you see today, a Father in Heaven who only gives good things. Allow that to affect the way in which you interact with others. Amen. It teaches you to think rightly about God. There's another layer to this text. Again, it concludes several units within the sermon. Taken in isolation, it's an encouraging passage that shows us the effectiveness of prayer. As we zoom out, we see it forms the mirror image, the complement to Jesus' teaching to not judge harshly. But going further out, it actually rounds off the section that began in 619. This was a new section after Jesus had said three times with three different examples, don't be a hypocrite in the way you pray, the way you give to the poor, how you fast, don't be a hypocrite. And then in 619, a new section begins. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. And central to his teaching there is verse 22, your eye must be healthy. It must be single. It must be whole. You need to be focused on God and everything else is appropriated under your allegiance to Him. If you try and serve as a slave to masters, it won't work. If you try and serve as a slave, both God and something else, as good as the other thing might be, it won't work. First of all, you'll be anxious. You remember the logic, how the sermon unpacks itself. There's connections between the units. If you are not single in your devotion to God, you will be an anxious person. You are clinging on to something too tightly. You are putting it on a par with God, and now you've opened up the door in your life to anxiety. And you will judge others harshly. 
You're not looking at the world the way God does. You're looking at the world in a, in a disfigured way with an emphasis on something that should not receive that kind of love and care and affection from you. And so that changes the way you evaluate the world before you. This all comes out of the teaching that your eye must be single, healthy, whole. And then the section rounds off with Jesus saying, ask, seek, knock. How does that fit into the logic of the text? It's a very, very hard portion of the sermon. I would say, as Jesus says that your eye has to be healthy, he speaks maybe one of the hardest sayings in all of the sermon. It's incredibly hard to stand before people who I know desire to honor the Lord and say, your eye has to be single, healthy. It's hard to stand before God's people and say, don't be anxious. Because I know that no one chooses anxiety. You don't delight in anxiety. You don't love to be anxious. You don't love how it's crippling your life. And the text says, don't do it. It's very hard to say, don't do it, knowing that you don't delight to do it. And in part, that's why Jesus gives so much explanation. In that portion, he shows us so much of how God cares for us. The answer to how it is we could possibly obey his teachings to not be anxious, to be single-minded and truly serve one master as a slave is to know that as we let go of good things, God means us no harm. The answer to how it is we can live a single-minded life and serve as a slave, just one master, is to know that God means us no harm. In our letting go of the things that we treasure on a par with God, He means us no harm. We fear. This is why we cling so tightly. We love them so much, and we fear that in letting go, harm will come our way. We will lose the thing that we treasure. The exact opposite is true. As you cling to it, your clinging to it will bring you harm. As you cling to it in a way that God never designed you to, it will bring you harm. But as you let go, and as you delight in the good things God has given you under His reign, that's when you enjoy the fullness of the blessing of that which He has entrusted to you. He means you no harm. He is for you. He is invested in your flourishing far more than you are. And his design is that you would not serve as a slave two or three or four masters. So as good and as beautiful as marriage is or your children and family, as good as your career is, as good as all the good things that God gives to you are, they are not intended to sit on a par with your worship of Him. 
And if you would but trust him and allow your grip to loosen, knowing that your loving heavenly father means you no harm, he only intends for you that which is good. You will walk in a path of immeasurable blessing. Jesus says, your heavenly Father knows how to give good things. He knows how to give good gifts, and he will give them. That is an understatement. Trust. Trust God and his provision for you. Now, the last section that this unit closes out reaches all the way back to 5.17. The sermon begins with the Beatitudes. He then says, you need to be in the world, you need to be salt and light, persecution will come, live out these Beatitudes. Then begins his teaching on a greater righteousness. As I've said over and over again, this section gives to us the ground zero, the foundation of the Christian ethic. You can go elsewhere in the New Testament to see how it is Christians are to live, and you might, you might find other commands given, but you will not find less. This is the baseline where Jesus says, here's how my disciples order their steps. And again, he sets a very, very high bar. The greater righteousness to which he commands us is not greater in quantity, but in quality, in essence. It's born out of love for God, faith in Christ. But nevertheless, it is a real righteousness. We cannot excuse our disobedience by appealing to God's grace. We are saved by His grace, and then He expects that we be people who obey. So Jesus sets a very high bar. Don't be angry. Don't lust, honor marriage, keep your word, don't retaliate, love your enemies. Start there. How can you obey? Jesus knows that he sets a high bar. Jesus knows that these are difficult teachings, and that's why I believe he intersperses this section, this unit of the sermon, with frequent appeals to the Father's love and his sufficiency to work out in your heart obedience. He teaches us, you have a Father in heaven who hears you pray. He teaches us that through the Lord's Prayer, and then he teaches us that again in this section. When he says, don't be anxious, he illustrates two times saying, the Father cares for the sparrows. How much more for you? He keeps telling us, you're not doing this alone. You're not supposed to work out your obedience apart from being fueled by the love of God in your life. You are to saturate your mind and your heart in who God is to you in Christ, and on that basis, then you obey, and that is only how you can obey. You can't obey apart from that, not consistently nor genuinely. When Jesus says, ask, seek not, 
I believe foremost in his mind is that we would ask and seek and knock with respect to our obedience. It's interesting as Luke records this same teaching from Jesus, the very last verse reads, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? There's a subtle shift in Luke's record of this teaching. Now, that should not cause you to question whether either author is not quite representing Jesus accurately. Most likely, Jesus preached these truths many times over in his ministry. Luke records the Sermon on the Plain. Matthew records the Sermon on the Mount. He had a really good sermon, and he kept preaching it. And very likely, on another occasion, he said, your Father who is in heaven will give you the Holy Spirit. So there's no sense of either author getting it wrong, but one reading helps us to understand the other. Perhaps foremost in Jesus' mind as he teaches us and impresses upon us, you are to ask, to seek, to knock, to be people of prayer. Perhaps foremost in his mind is that we would be asking God to work out in us paths of obedience that we would be praying to God to fill us afresh daily with the Holy Spirit. The reason that you can obey the greater righteousness that Jesus sets forth is because God dwells in you. Apart from that, you couldn't. But now God dwells in you and you can obey Christ's command. So as you understand, foremost amongst your responsibilities in this life is to obey the Word of God. Should not your leading prayer be, God, fill me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit this day that I would obey. The Holy Spirit dwells in you the second you put your faith in Christ, never ever to leave you. The epistles teach us We can have varying measures of the Spirit. And we need to pray that we would be full to overflowing of the Holy Spirit. Fill me to overflowing today. Why? So that I would walk in obedience. I put it another way. I would say if you examine your life and don't see obedience in these areas, it is perhaps because you are not praying for it. Pray that you would obey the words of Christ today. Now, after this unit, the sermon starts to take on a very evangelistic edge. People observe after this teaching, Jesus starts to appeal, it would seem primarily, to the lost in the crowd. He begins the sermon speaking to his disciples. He ends the sermon, it would seem, speaking to the crowd that has gathered in the course of his preaching who do not yet know him savingly. And so you see the tree and its fruit. Depart from me, I never knew you. Build your house on the rock. He starts to preach the gospel for salvation. Some suggest that that evangelistic turn 
actually begins here. Ask, seek, knock. Perhaps it does. The point is, there are some who have not yet known the blessing of answered prayer from a loving Heavenly Father because they have not yet put faith in Christ. If that is you, you need to ask and seek and knock specifically for salvation. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Ask for salvation in Christ alone and know that God will not withhold it from you. And as you walk into a lifetime of blessing in relationship with Him, may we all know the effectiveness of prayer. May we think rightly about our God. May we be single-minded and pursue a greater righteousness to the praise of His glory. Pray with me now to close. Father, we give you thanks for Jesus' teaching. On the topic of prayer, we are grateful that you are a loving Heavenly Father who is pleased to answer us when we come to you in prayer. Ask, seek, knock, it will be given to you. Impress upon us more that our prayers are heard and answered. Don't allow us to be the doubting man in James 1. Work in our hearts that we would ask with confidence, knowing that it will be granted to us. Teach us of your character. Teach us of the abundance of your love not only that it would inform our prayers, but it would in turn affect the way we deal with one another. Father, teach us to be single-minded. Prize our hands off that which we treasure. Minister to us in our anxiety. Take it away. as we trust that you mean us no harm. You give good gifts. You only have the very best for us. And lead us in a path of greater righteousness. Fill us to overflowing with the Holy Spirit that we would obey the commands of Christ we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.